You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. When the Moon Turned Green by Hal K. Wells Part 1 It was nearly midnight when Bruce Dixon finished his labors and wearily rose from before the workbench of his lonely mountain laboratory, located in an abandoned mine working in southern Arizona. He looked like some weirdly garbed monk of the Middle Ages as he stretched his tall, lithe figure. His head was completely swathed in a hood of lead cloth, broken only by twin eye-holes of green glass. The hood merged into a long-sleeved tunic of the same fabric, while lead-cloth gauntlets covered his hands. The lead-cloth costume was demanded by Dixon's work with radium compounds. The result of that work lay before him on the bench a tiny lead capsule containing a pinhead lump of a substance which Dixon believed would utterly dwarf Earth's most powerful explosives in its cataclysmic power. So engrossed had Dixon been in the final stages of his work that for the last seventy-two hours he had literally lived there in his laboratory. It remained now only for him to step outside and test the effect of the little contact grenade, and at the same time get a badly needed taste of fresh air. He set the safety catch on the little bomb and slipped it into his pocket. As he started for the door, he threw back his hood, revealing the ruggedly good-looking face of a young man in the early thirties, with lines of weariness now etched deeply into the clean-cut features. The moment that Dixon entered the short winding tunnel that led to the outer air, he was vaguely aware that something was wrong. There was a strange and intangibly sinister quality in the moonlight that streamed dimly into the winding passage. Even the cool night air itself seemed charged with a subtle aura of brooding evil. Dixon reached the entrance and stepped out into the full radiance of the moonlight. He stopped abruptly and stared around him in utter amazement. High in the eastern sky there rode the disk of a full moon— but it was a moon weirdly different from any that Dixon had ever seen before. This moon was a deep and baleful green, was glowing with a stark malignant fire like that which lurks in the blazing heart of a giant emerald. Bathed in the glow of the intense green rays, the desolate mountain landscape shone with a new and eerie beauty. Dixon took a dazed step forward. His foot thudded softly into a small feathered body there in the sparse grass— and he stooped to pick it up. It was a crested quail, with every muscle as stonily rigid as though the bird had been dead for hours. Yet Dixon, to his surprise, felt the slow faint beat of a pulse still in the tiny body. Then a dim group of unfamiliar objects down in the shadows of a small gully in front of him caught Dixon's eye. Tucking the body of the quail inside his tunic for later examination, he hurried down into the gully, a moment later he was standing by what had been the night camp of a prospector. The prospector was still there, his rigid figure wrapped in a blanket, and his wide-open eyes staring sightlessly at the malignant green moon in the sky above. Dixon knelt to examine the stricken man's body. It showed the same mysterious condition as that of the quail, rigidly stiff in every muscle, yet with the slow pulse and respiration of life still faintly present. Dixon found the prospector's horse and burrow sprawled on the ground half a dozen yards away, both animals frozen in the same baffling condition of living death. Dixon's brain reeled as he tried to fathom the incredible calamity that had apparently overwhelmed the world while he had been hidden away in his subterranean laboratory. Then a new and terrible thought assailed him. 
if the grim effect of the baleful green rays was universal in its extent what then of old emile crawford and his niece ruth lawton crawford an inventor like dixon had his laboratory in a valley some five miles away an abrupt chill went over Dixon's heart at the thought of Ruth Lawton's vivid, Titian-haired beauty being forever stilled in the grip of that eerie living death. He and Ruth had loved each other ever since they had first met. Dixon broke into a run as he headed for a nearby ridge that looked out over the valley. His pulse hammered with unusual violence as he scrambled up the steep incline, and his muscles seemed to be tiring with strange rapidity. He had a vague feeling that the rays of that malignant green moon were beating directly into his brain, clouding his thoughts and draining his physical strength. Gaining the crest of the ridge, he stopped aghast as he looked down the valley toward Emile Crawford's place. Near the site of Crawford's laboratory home was an unearthly pyrotechnic display such as Dixon had never seen before. An area several hundred yards in diameter seemed one vivid welter of pulsing colors, with flashing lances of every hue crisscrossing in and through a great central cloud of ever-changing opalescence, like a fiery aurora borealis gone mad. Dixon fought back the ever-increasing lethargy that was benumbing his brain, and groped dazedly for a key to this new riddle. Was it some weird and colossal experiment of Emile Crawford's that was causing the green rays of death from a transformed moon, an experiment the earthly base of which was amid the seething play of blazing colors down there in the valley? The theory seemed hardly a plausible one. As far as Dixon knew, Crawford's work had been confined almost entirely to a form of radio-propelled projectile for use in wartime against marauding planes. Dixon shook his head forcibly in a vain effort to clear the stupor that was sweeping over him. It was strange how the vivid rays of that malevolent green moon seemed to sear insidiously into one's brain, stifling thought as a swamp fog stifles the sunlight. Then Dixon suddenly froze into stark immobility, staring with startled eyes at the base of a rocky crag thirty yards away. Something was lurking there in the green-black shadows— a great sprawling black shape of abysmal horror, with a single flaming opalescent eye fixed unwinkingly upon Dixon. The next moment the vivid moon was suddenly obscured by drifting wisps of cloud. As the green light blurred to an emerald haze, the creature under the crag came slithering out toward Dixon. He had a vague glimpse of a monster such as one should see only in nightmares, a huge, loathsome spider-form, with a bloated body as long as that of a man, and great sprawling legs that sent it half a dozen yards nearer Dixon in one effortless leap. The onslaught proved too much for Dixon's morale, half-dazed as he was by the green moon's paralyzing rays. With a low, inarticulate cry of terror, he turned and ran, straining every muscle in a futile effort to distance the frightful thing that inexorably kept pace in the shadowy emerald gloom behind him. Dixon's strength faded rapidly after his first wild sprint. Fifty yards more and his faltering muscles failed him utterly. The dread rays of that grim green moon sapped his last faint powers of resistance. He staggered on for a few more painful steps, then sprawled helplessly to the ground. His brain hovered momentarily upon the verge of complete unconsciousness. 
Then he was suddenly aware of a fluttering struggle inside his tunic where he had placed the body of the quail. A moment later and the bird wriggled free. It promptly spread its wings and flew away, apparently as vibrantly alive as before the mysterious paralysis had stricken it. The incident brought a faint surge of hope to Dixon as he dimly realized the answer to at least part of the green moon's riddle. The bird had recovered after being shielded in the lead cloth of his tunic. That could only mean one thing. The menace of those green moon rays must, in some unknown way, be radioactive. If Dixon could only get the lead cloth hood over his own head again, he also might cheat the green doom. He fumbled at the garment with fingers that seemed as stiff as wooden blocks. There was a long moment of agony when he feared that his effort had come too late. Then the hood finally slipped over his head, just as utter oblivion claimed him. Dixon came abruptly back to life with the dimly remembered echo of a woman's scream still ringing in his ears. For a moment he thought that he was awakening on his cot back in the laboratory after an unusually vivid and weird nightmare. Then the garish green moonlight around him brought swift realization that the incredible happenings of the night were grim reality. The clouds were gone from the moon, leaving his surroundings again clearly outlined in the flood of green light. Dixon lifted his head and cautiously searched the scene, but he could see no trace of the great spider-form that had pursued him. Wondering curiously why the creature had abandoned the chase at the moment when victory was within its grasp, Dixon rose lithely to his feet. The protecting hood had brought a quick and complete recovery from the devastating effects of the green moon's rays. His muscles were again supple, and his brain once more functioned with clearness. Then abruptly Dixon's blood froze as the sound of a woman's scream came again. The cry was that of a woman in the last extremity of terror, and Dixon knew with a terrible certainty that that woman was Ruth Lawton. He raced toward the small ridge of rocks from behind which the sound had apparently come. A moment later he reached the scene and stopped, horror-stricken. Three figures were there in a small rock-walled clearing. One was old Emile Crawford, sprawled unconscious on his side, the soft glow of a small white globe in a strange headpiece atop his gray hair shining eerily in the green moonlight. Near Crawford's body loomed the giant spider creature, and clutched firmly in the great claspers just under the monster's terrible fanged mouth was the slender body of Ruth Lawton. Merciful unconsciousness had apparently overwhelmed the girl now, for she lay supinely in the dread embrace, with eyes closed and lips silent. As the monster dropped the girl's body to the ground and whirled to confront Dixon, for the first time he had a clear view of the thing in all its horror. He shuddered in uncontrollable nausea. The incredible size of the creature was repellent enough, but it was the grisly head of the monstrosity that struck the final note of horror. That head was more than half human. The fangs and other mouth parts were those of a giant tarantula, but these merged directly into the mutilated but unmistakable head of a man, with an aquiline nose, staring eyes, and a tousled mop of dirty brown hair. Resting on top of the head was a metallic headpiece, similar to the one worn by Emile Crawford, but the small globe in this one blazed with a fiery opalescence. The creature crouched lower, with its legs twitching in obvious preparation for a spring. Dixon looked wildly about him for a possible weapon, but saw nothing. 
Then he suddenly remembered the little lead grenade in his pocket. The cataclysmic power of that little bomb should be more than a match for even this monster. His fingers closed over the grenade just as the great spider's twitching legs straightened in a mighty effort that sent it hurtling through the air straight toward him. Dixon dodged to one side with a swiftness that caused the monster to miss by a good yard. Dixon raced a dozen paces farther away, then whirled to face the great spider. The creature's legs began scuttling warily forward. It was to be no wild leap through the air this time, but a swift rush over the ground that Dixon would be powerless to evade. Releasing the safety catch of the grenade, Dixon hurled the tiny missile straight at the rock floor just under the feet of that vast misshapen creature. There was a vivid flash of blinding blue flame, then a terrific report. Dazed by the concussion, but unhurt, Dixon cautiously went over to investigate the result of the explosion. One brief glance was enough. The hideous mass of shattered flesh sprawling there on the rocks would never again be a menace. The only thing that had escaped destruction in that shattering blast was the strange headpiece the thing had worn. Either the small shining globe was practically indestructible, or else it had been spared by some odd freak of the explosive, for it still blazed in baleful opalescence atop the shattered head. Dixon hurried back to where Emil Crawford and Ruth Lawton lay. The girl's body was so rigidly inert that Dixon threw back his encumbering hood and knelt over her for a swift examination. His fears were quickly realized. Ruth was already a victim of the Green Moon's dread paralysis. "'Dixon! Bruce Dixon!' Dixon turned at the call. Emil Crawford, his face drawn with pain, had struggled up on one elbow. The old man was obviously fighting off complete collapse by sheer willpower. "'Dixon! Replace Ruth's shining headpiece at once,' Crawford gasped. "'That will make her immune from the green death, and then we can—' The old man's voice swiftly faded away into silence as he again fainted. Dixon hurriedly searched the scene and found Ruth's headpiece on the ground where it had apparently fallen in her first struggle with the giant spider, but the tiny white globe in the device was shattered and dark. Despair gripped Dixon for a moment. Then he remembered the unbroken headpiece of the slain monster. True, the glow of its globe was opalescent instead of white, but it seemed to offer its wearer the same immunity to the green moon's rays. He swiftly retrieved the headpiece from the spider-creature's body, and set the light metal framework in place on Ruth's auburn curls. Results came with incredible quickness. The rigidity left Ruth's body immediately. Her breath came in fast, quickening gasps, and her eyes fluttered open as Dixon knelt over her. "'It's Bruce, Ruth. Bruce Dixon,' he said tenderly. "'Don't you know me, dear?' But there was no trace of recognition in those wide-open blue eyes staring fixedly up at him. For a moment Ruth lay there with muscles strangely tense. Then, with a lithe strength that was amazing, she suddenly twisted free of the clasp of Dixon's arms and sprang to her feet. The next minute Dixon gave ground, and he found himself battling for his very life. This was not the Ruth Lawton whom he had known and loved. This was a madwoman of savage menace, with soft lips writhing over white teeth in a jungle snarl, and blue eyes that fairly glittered with unrestrained, insensate hate. He tried to close with the maddened girl, but instantly regretted his rashness. Her slender body seemed imbued with the strength of a tigress, as she sent slim fingers clawing at his throat. He tore himself free just in time. Dazed and shaken, he again gave ground before the fury of the girl's attack. 
He could not bring himself to the point of actively fighting back, yet he knew that in another moment he would either have to mercilessly batter his beautiful adversary into helplessness, or else be himself overcome. There was no middle course. Then old Emile Crawford's voice came again as the old man rallied to consciousness for another brief moment. "'Bruce, the opal globe is a direct link to those devils themselves. Break it, Bruce. Break it, for Ruth's sake as well as your own.' Crawford had barely finished his gasped warning when Ruth again hurled herself forward upon Dixon with tapering fingers curved like talons as they sought his throat. Dixon swept her clutching hands aside with a desperate left-handed parry, then snatched wildly at the gleaming headpiece with his right hand. The thing came away in his grasp, and in the same swift movement he savagely smashed it against the rocky wall beside him. Whatever the opalescent globe's eerie powers might be, it was not indestructible. It shattered like a bursting bubble, its fire dying in a tiny cloud of particles that shimmered faintly for a moment, then was gone. Again the effect upon Ruth was almost instantaneous. Every trace of her insane fury vanished. She swayed dizzily and would have fallen had not Dixon caught her in his arms. For a moment she looked up into his face with eyes in which recognition now shone unmistakably. Then her eyelids slowly closed, and she again lapsed into unconsciousness. Dixon looked over at Emile Crawford, and found that the old man had again collapsed. Dixon knew of but one thing to do with the stricken man and girl, and that was to take them to his laboratory. The laboratory, apparently insulated by veins of lead ore in the mountains surrounding it, was the one sure spot of refuge in this weird nightmare world of paralyzing lunar rays and prowling monsters. Flinging his tunic over Ruth's head to shield her as much as possible from the moonlight, he carried her to the laboratory, then returned for Emil Crawford. Safe within the subterranean retreat with the old scientist, Dixon removed his encumbering lead costume and began doing what he could for the stricken pair. Ruth was still unconscious, but the cataleptic rigidity was already nearly gone from her body, and her breathing was now the deep respiration of normal sleep. Emil Crawford's condition was more serious. Not only was the old man's frail strength nearly exhausted, but he was also badly wounded. His thin chest was seared by two great livid areas of burned flesh, the nature of which puzzled Dixon as he began to dress the injuries. They seemed of radioactive origin, yet in many ways they were unlike any radium burns that Dixon had ever seen. While Dixon was working over him, Crawford stirred weakly and opened his eyes. He sighed in relief as he recognized his surroundings. "'Good boy, Bruce,' he commended wanly. "'We are safe here among the insulating veins of lead ore in the mountain. This is where Ruth and I were trying to come after we escaped from those devils tonight. But, Bruce, how did you guess the radioactive nature of the green sickness in time to avoid falling a victim to it as soon as you left the shelter of your laboratory?' "'My escape was entirely luck,' Dixon admitted grimly. "'Tonight I left my laboratory for the first time in three days. "'I found a world gone mad with a strange green moon blazing down upon a land of living dead men, "'and with marauding monsters hideous enough to have been spawned in the pit itself. "'What in heaven's name does it all mean?' "'I am afraid that it means the end of the world, Bruce,' Crawford answered quietly. It was a little over forty-eight hours ago that the incredible event first happened. Without a moment's warning, the moon turned green. Hardly had the world's astronomers had time to speculate upon this amazing phenomenon before the green sickness struck. 
a pestilence of appalling deadliness that swept resistlessly in the path of those weird green rays. Wherever the green moon shone, every living creature succumbed with ghastly swiftness to the condition of living death that you have seen. Westward with the racing moon sped the green sickness, and nothing stayed its attack. The green rays pierced through buildings of wood, stone, and iron as though they did not exist. A doomed world had neither time nor opportunity to guess that lead was the one armor against those dread rays. Tonight, Bruce, we are in all probability the only three human beings on this planet who are not slumbering in the paralytic stupor of the green sickness. Ruth and I were stricken with the rest of the world, Crawford continued. We recovered consciousness hours later to find ourselves captives in the earth camp of the invaders themselves. You probably saw the display of lights that marks their camp down in the valley a mile beyond my place. We have learned since that the spaceship of the invaders dropped silently down into the valley the night before the moon turned green and established the camp as a sort of outpost and observatory. They left two of their number there as pioneers. Then the rest of them departed in the spaceship for their present post up near the moon. Ruth and I were revived only so that the two invaders in the camp might question us regarding life on this planet. They have a science that is based upon principles as utterly strange and incomprehensible to us as ours probably is to them. They probed my brain with a thought machine. It was an apparatus that worked both ways. What knowledge they got from me I do not know but I do know that they unwittingly told me much in the bizarre and incredible mental pictures that the machine carried from their brains to mine. They are refugees, Bruce, from a planet that circled about the star that we know as Alpha Centauri, being only four and a third light-years distant. Their home planet was disrupted by a colossal engineering experiment of the Centaurians themselves, the only survivors being a group of fifty who escaped in a spaceship just before the catastrophe. There were no other habitable planets in their own system, so in desperation these refugees sped out across the void to our solar system, in the hope of finding a new home here. They reconnoitered our Earth secretly and found it ideal, but first they believed that they must conquer the life that already held this Earth. To do this, they struck with the green sickness. The rays that are turning the moon green emanate from the spaceship, hovering up there some fifty thousand miles from the moon itself. The Centaurians' rays, blending with the sunlight striking the disk of the full moon, are intensified in some unknown way, then reflected across the quarter of a million miles to the earth to flood this planet with virulent radiance. The green moonlight is radioactive in nature, and overcomes animal life within a matter of fifteen minutes or less. The rays are most powerful when the moon is in the sky, but their effect continues even after it has set because as long as the green moonlight strikes any part of the Earth's atmosphere, the entire atmospheric envelope of the planet remains charged with the paralyzing radioactive influence. Earth's inhabitants are not dead. They are merely stupefied. If the green rays were to cease now, most of the victims of the green sickness would quickly recover with little permanent injury. But, Bruce, if that evil green moon blazes on for twenty-four hours more— the brain powers of Earth's millions will be forever shattered. So weakened will they be by then that recovery will be impossible, even with the rays shut off. 
and the entire planet will be populated only by mindless imbeciles, readily available material for the myriads of monstrous hybrids that the invaders will create to serve them. Tonight you saw the hybrid that the invaders sent to recapture Ruth and me. It was a fit specimen of the grisly magic which those devils from outer space work with their uncanny surgery and growth-stimulating radioactive rays. The basic element of that monster was an ordinary tarantula spider, with its growth incredibly increased in a few short hours of intensive ray treatment in the Centaurians' camp. The half-head grafted to it was that of a human being. They always graft the brain cavity of a mammal to a hybrid, half-heads of burros, horses, or even dogs, but preferably those of human beings. I think that they prefer to use as great a brain power as possible. The hybrids are controlled through the small opalescent globes on their heads, globes that are in direct tune with a huge master globe of opalescent fire in the invader's camp. When Ruth attacked you after you placed the opal headpiece upon her head, she was for the moment merely another of the invader's servants blindly obeying the broadcast command to kill. The white globes that Ruth and I wore when we escaped from the camp were identical with those worn by the invaders themselves, being nothing more than harmless insulators against the effect of the green moonlight. A sudden spasm of pain convulsed Crawford's face. Dixon sprang forward to aid him, but the old man rallied with an effort and weakly waved Dixon back. "'I'm all right, Bruce,' he gasped. "'My strength is nearly exhausted, that is all. Like a garrulous old fool, I've worn myself out talking about everything but the one important subject. Bruce, have you developed that new and infinitely powerful explosive you were working on?' "'Yes,' Dixon answered grimly. "'I have an explosive right here in the laboratory that can easily blow the Centurion's camp completely off the map.'" End of Part 1